Oh, Father, what power there is in the name of Jesus. What hope there is in the name of Jesus. What comfort, what refreshment, what glory. Father, we thank you that if we are in you, we can sing that with great confidence. We can sing that we have overcome, not by our strength, not by our might, but by the blood of the Lamb who gave himself up for us. And he loved first so that we can love him. Father, what a gift, what hope. I pray right now as we are here in your presence, Holy Spirit, continue to move among your people. As we open up your word, I pray we would eagerly, willingly, joyfully take on a posture of humility to say, speak to me, Lord. I need a touch of you this morning. I need you to say what only you can say. And Lord, I ask that you would. Take me out of the way. You must increase. You must increase. I must decrease. Your church does not need to hear from me. They need to hear from you. I need to hear from you this morning. Heavenly Father, guard my mouth from error. Say what you want to say to the the one that comes in here today, weary, weak, hopeless, discouraged, deceived, disillusioned, whatever it is, God. I pray right now you would shine the light and truth and power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we would cast those anxiety on you because you care for us, God. And we'd say, come, Lord, here I am. Here I am, change me, change me. May the impact of today and the Spirit's work, God, ripple into eternity. May it be so. In the name of Jesus Christ, church, if you agree, say amen. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. What a blessing it is to be here again with you this morning on this icy uh, Weekend, thank you for making a priority to be here and come together as God's people. Such power when the church comes together. And uh, being out of the pulpit last week, it was a, a needed break, but it also reminded me, just love you church so much and can't wait to be doing this together again. Praise the Lord for that. Open up our Bibles today to John chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. John chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. If you do not have a Bible in front of you, please put up your hand. One of our ushers is coming by now to place one in front of you. And if you do not have a Bible at home, then please take that as a free gift, as our way of saying thank you for choosing to worship with us this morning. John chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. And here we are going through our series on the gospel of John, verse by verse, line by line. And we are beginning the next section of the gospel where John the Baptist, from chapter 1, John the Baptist has now faded from the scene. Okay, he's faded into the background. And the life and ministry of Jesus starts to take center stage and will for the rest of the book. And what's unique about this section that we're entering into, chapters 2 to the, up to and including the end of chapter 12 are known as the book of signs. The book of signs in the gospel of John. And here over these next number of weeks and years coming up, we are going to see seven signs 
that Jesus performs in these chapters. Seven signs, each of them different. And Jesus performed them to various people groups. And each of them displayed another aspect of his glory. Each of them displayed another aspect of his glory. But before we go there, let me just start off with a straw poll question. How many of us, hands up nice and high, how many of us have ever asked God for a sign? Have you ever asked God for a sign? Yes, it's not just me. Praise the Lord. Here we go. Have you ever asked God for a sign? Maybe it's like, who am I supposed to marry, God? Yeah, yeah, I heard some, oh, yes, there you go. Yes, love you. I just love this church. All right, here we go. Yeah, maybe it's like, who I'm supposed to marry. Maybe it's like, uh, what school should I go to for our students? What, what decision should I make? And how do I get through this trial? God, just give me a sign. We hear that a lot. But it begs the question, what is the purpose of a sign given by God? What is the purpose as to why God gives signs here in his word and continues to work today? Well, let's, let, let's take a look. The Greek word for sign that we're going to see in verse 11 today, and as we see carried on through the gospel of John, the Greek word is this, say my on, say my on, and it means this, to confirm, corroborate, or authenticate the one giving it, okay, to confirm corroborate or authenticate the one giving it. In fact, John 20, if we look at the whole purpose of the book of John, John 20, 30 to 31 says this. You'll see it on the screen. Now Jesus did many other signs. There it is again. Say my on. In the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, But these are written, so he's writing about the signs, why? So that you may believe, you may have authenticated, you may have corroborated evidence that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. There's the purpose of signs, but there's a problem, because we like to think... We like to think that the reasons God does signs and miracles is about us and him giving us what we want and what we're asking him for. We like to think that, kind of like a genie mentality. God, just give me a sign and make sure I can get what I want and make it more comfortable for me and just get me through this, get me this, get me this, get me this. We like to do that. However, the truth is this. This is going to carry us through the book of signs right here. Signs from God are meant to point us back to God, always. Signs from God are meant to point us back to God, never to ourselves, are meant to point us back to God and are used to display his glory and not our own. They are used to display his glory and not our own. Each one of them is used to show something more about him. Something more about his character, something more about his nature, all contributing to his glory. And so each of the seven signs that we will look at displays another aspect of his glory. Some of them display his sovereignty. Some of them display um, his, uh, sor- him being the source of satisfaction. Some displaying his authority. And today, the purpose of this sign where he turns water into wine was to demonstrate or confirm his deity as the Son of God, as the Messiah, but also his power as the creator of all things. 
used to display his deity, but also his power. It wasn't just to supply wine to a thirsty wedding. There was a greater purpose that the eyes of faith must see. And so here in our text, we will see two crucial responses we must take, loved ones. If we are going to see God's glory through his power in our trials and situations that we face every day, we'll see two crucial responses we must take. Let's read verses 1 to 12 and let's stand to honor the authority of God's word. John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Awesome. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Well, the first response we see here clearly in verses 1 to 3 is this, that I will see God's glory in my situation when I turn to him in it. When I turn to him in it. The key question for this section that underlines everything is this, what am I turning to? You could also add there, who am I turning to? Look at verses 1 to 3. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Let's get some context here. Remember, we're in approximately uh, 26, 27 AD. We're still in Jesus' first week of ministry. This week started with John the Baptist's testimony of him in verse 19, and now his public ministry where he begins to reveal who he is starts. And up until now, we have to realize, loved ones, up until now, Jesus has hidden his identity. He's hidden his identity as the Son of God and Messiah. All through childhood, all through his early manhood, he's kept that hidden, and we'll see why in a minute. And now that he starts performing signs, his true identity starts to come out. Now, notice in verse 1, it says they're on the third day. What day is he talking about? Well, this takes place two days after his encounter with Nathaniel in verses 43 to 51 that Pastor Eric walked us through faithfully last week. It's the last narrated event that John wrote about. So it's two days after that. And Jesus, his mother who's not mentioned by name, but we know that to be Mary, and his disciples 
are invited to a wedding in Cana. Now, the fact that Jesus and his mom and his disciples were invited means the wedding was most likely a close friend or relative, okay? And so, and we also have to understand, Jesus doesn't have all 12 disciples at this point. Do you keep track as we've gone through? How many does he have at this point? There's five. There's five that have been now following Jesus, and they are Andrew, Philip, Simon, Peter, Nathaniel, and then the unnamed one, which we know to be later on, John himself. John never uses himself by name in his book, an act of humility. Now, Cana, what's going on in Cana? We're not 100% certain where Cana was. All right, but it's believed to be nine miles, north of Na- nine miles north of Nazareth in northern Israel. You see it on the screen. Okay, There's a circle around there. So there's all of Israel at this point, southern, northern kingdoms. There's Cana. Let's zoom in to the Sea of Galilee region. There it is. So you see Nazareth. You've got Sephor- Nazareth, Sephora, and then Cana. All right, Nine miles north, it's believed, of Nazareth. And here's what Cana looks like today. There it is. A little city in the hills of Galilee. It's where they believe it to be. Now, now there's a problem here. So this is where they're hanging out. This is where it's taking place. But there's a problem. And verse 3 tells us, Mary comes to him and says, Jesus, there's no wine. They've run out of wine. Now, some of us might look at that and we say, well, what's the big deal? Well, here's what we have to understand. Most likely, if this was a close family friend or relative, Mary had some role in coordinating the wedding. Okay, so she was helping out. Maybe she was in charge of making sure there was an oven. We don't know that, but that is most likely the case for this family wedding. And we have to realize this, though. This Jewish wedding, a Jewish wedding was the greatest celebration of a person's life. I mean, they were pulling out all the stops. All right, there was no expense spared. Okay, and it's the weddings there are not like today's weddings where there's a ceremony and then maybe a reception and then we all go home and sleep in our own beds. The way it worked in a Jewish wedding, and at times still does today, it included the ceremony, but there was a marriage feast that happened at the groom's house after the wedding that lasted up to a week. Imagine having people in your house if you're the groom for a week afterwards. Right, right? Think about this. It could last for the week. So the wedding wasn't just a celebration. It was a symbol of status. All right? Every need of every guest needed to be met. And the groom, here's here's an interesting thing. The groom had financial responsibility for it all. He had to make sure that he had provided financially to make sure all the needs could be covered and that each person got what they needed wanted. So to run out of wine is a major embarrassment. It is a disgrace and it goes so far. It's so serious. Like get this. It is so serious that you are actually risking the groom and everyone helping plan the wedding is actually risking a lawsuit from the bride's relatives for disgracing her on her wedding day. How about kickstarting your relationship with your in-laws with a lawsuit? So Mary isn't just like, hey, Jesus, they ran out of the wine. She's like, they ran out. There's a problem here. Things are starting to unravel. So live in the text. Put yourself in Mary's shoes. You know what's at stake. 
You see this is happening. You know the cost of what's coming if something isn't done quickly. You know the price that will be paid for you and for those you are trying to help if this need is not met. How would you respond if you're Mary in that situation? Running around, you had a hand in coordinating and balls are getting dropped. And How would you respond? Would you respond with anxiety? Would you start to get anxious? Would you start to get stressed a little bit? Uh-oh, uh-oh, am I going to have a lawsuit on my door tomorrow? Would you start to get angry and, and bitter and frustrated, blaming other people, pointing fingers? Well, if you had done this, then everything would be fine. If you had done, how would you feel? Put yourself in the text. Live in the text. Would you start to worry? Would you start to doubt? Fear? Now, notice what Mary does, though. Notice what Mary does. Mary sees the situation, knows that it's hopeless. We can't do anything. She knows they couldn't come up with anything to fix it. So she turns to her son Jesus and tells him they have no one. Can't you just see that, that mom look? Maybe even the dad look? Hey, son, they have no wine. What's the implication there? I did that the other day with one of my boys. Hey, son, your room's a mess. What's the implication in the statement? Please clean your room. Please do something about it. So here's Mary saying, Jesus, they have no wine. Do something about it, please. And she knows he's the only one who could. You say, wait a second. Why did she respond this way? Because here's the truth. Mary knew Jesus was the son of God. Better than anyone else in that room at this point. She knew he was the son of God. And even though she didn't know what he would do, she knew that whatever he did do would be the right thing to do in that situation. It would be much greater than anything she or anyone else could ever do by her own efforts and by getting anxious and by getting stressed and by freaking out and by getting bitter and blaming and making excuses. She didn't know how it would happen, but trusted that it would as she turned to God in faith. Know this. Only God can create something out of nothing. Only God can create something out of nothing. Only God can do what is impossible with man and make it possible with him. Only God can bring hope to a hopeless looking situation. Only God can give supernatural strength in a place of natural, impossible circumstances, weakness, frailty. Only God can do that. Only God can create something out of nothing. So question, question, loved ones. Who or what are you turning to in the situations you are facing? Maybe you're going through a trial right now. Maybe it's just the day-to-day. Who or what are you turning to? Hey, students, loved ones, love you so much. Here's the thing. Who are you turning to in your exams? So many of us, when we get to the exam period, yeah, I'll put my God time on hold and then I'll just hit the textbooks and who are you turning to? That's backwards, loved ones. And then you wonder why we get stressed and anxious 
God takes a back seat. Who or what are we turning to? The situation in our marriages where the situation looks hopeless and you say, I've tried everything. There's nothing left that can save my marriage. My question is this, really? Only God can create something out of nothing. The question is, are you turning to him? Or other things or other ways of escape. Maybe this, maybe we're... Who are you turning to in that conflict where you're like, that person just seems so hard. Nothing can happen. Really? Really? Nothing? Nothing? You sure? Because only God can create something out of nothing. Whose strength, whose wisdom are you relying on? How about this? Well, my parenting, my kids, they don't seem to be listening. They just keep walking further away from the Lord. There doesn't seem to be anything there that I can do. Really? Really? Hey, hey, hey. Only God can create something out of nothing. Are you turning to him? Are you? Who or what are you turning to when the fear, when the stress, when the anxiety, when the worry and doubt begin to creep in? Who are you turning to? Yourself? Self-reliance, your ways. Well, I got to work hard to do this. I'm going to work in my own strength. Maybe you're turning to others. I'm not going to seek the counsel, turn to the counsel of the Lord. I'm not going to go to get counsel from one who fears the Lord. I'm going to go to the counsel of the world. Because that's going to help. Listen, listen, loved ones. Maybe some of us, where do we turn? Maybe we self-medicate with alcohol. Just numb the stress, numb the anxiety. Maybe it's with drugs. Maybe it's with food. Maybe I turn to my anger. If I just get angry enough, I'll control the situation. Or opposite, maybe we go to self-pity. Nobody understands what I'm going through. God doesn't understand. Just leave me alone. I'm just going to kind of commiserate with myself. Where do you turn to? Think about that. As you think about that, think about this. Hear the word of the Lord. Isaiah 45, 22. Love it. Turn to me, God says, and be saved. Turn to me and be saved. You know what this, the saved word, the Hebrew word for saved there means delivered. Turn to me and be saved. Look at this, all the ends of the earth. This isn't just for one specific part. This is for everyone. You say, but my situation's too hopeless. Turn to me and be saved. You say, but I can't see a way through. There's nothing that, turn to me and be saved. Loved one. Will you turn to him? For I am God and there is no other. Be comforted in this truth right now. In every situation you're facing or will face, this truth doesn't change. Our God doesn't change. So question, who are you turning to? Turn to me and be saved. I don't know what each of you are going through here today. There's a lot of people in the room. There's a lot of different situations. But hear the word of the Lord today. Turn to him and be saved. What is that for you? Will you? You say, well, how do I, how do I, how do I turn to God? What does that practically look like? Okay, five things here that God gives us in his word. Five things. How do I turn to the Lord? Repent, turn to him through repentance. 
Look at Acts 3, 19 and 20. I love this. Repent, therefore. That means turn away from any sin in your life. Turn away from anything that you are holding on to. Agree with God that he calls it sin. Turn away from that. Turn towards him. Repent, therefore, and turn back. There's a word. Turn back. That your sins may be blotted out. That times, I love this, ready? Times of refreshing. Anyone here need refreshment in the presence of God today? That times of refreshing, not times of condemnation, not times of heaping on guilt, times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And if you're here and you've never confessed Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, your first step of turning to him is repenting of your sin and confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And you will be saved today. Turn to him and be saved. And if you have made that decision, hey, hey, loved ones, we need to repent of the small g gods we erect in God's place. We need to repent of the idols that we're turning to and saying, this will satisfy me. This will fill me. This will get me through. This will numb me. This will fill in the blank. We need to stop running. You need refreshment? There's how you get it. Turn to God in repentance first. Repent. Number two, remind. Remind. Turn to him through his word. I was so blessed by Psalm 119.59 this week. He says this. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. What's his testimonies? His word. When I think on my ways, when I think about how I'm handling things, when I think about what's going on in my life, when I think about the situation that I'm facing, I don't turn to other things. I turn my feet towards your testimonies. I remind myself, even when I can't see how you're going to work, I remind myself of your path, your power, and your promises. I remind myself. So we return to him in repentance. We turn to him in remembrance through his word. Next, we turn to him in realignment. Turn to him through prayer. Look at 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7. It says this. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Deliver you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Of course, times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord when that happens. When we humble ourselves under and say, I can't, you must increase, I must decrease. I can't do this. I'm not turning to other things. All you, Lord. And prayer realigns our hearts to the Lord in intimacy, in truth, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Repent, remind ourselves, realign. Here it is, relationship. How do I turn to God? I turn to him through relationship. Turn to him through community. Through community. Look at Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. There we are, turning one another to the Lord. The enemy thrives to get you isolated. He wants you isolated from the body of Christ. He wants you divided from the body of Christ so you can feel like you're alone and there's no one else around you. Listen, listen, that is not God's plan. The Christian life is meant to be lived in community. 
stirring one another up to loving good words. Don't neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day, the day of Jesus Christ coming back, approaching. Resolve to be in community. Stirring one another, getting counsel. And I love seeing this, like Sunday mornings, beautiful, on service teams. I drove in here to drop off some bins, and there's our Harvest Kids team in a circle, praying for each other, praying over the service. I look out the doors, there's our welcome team, praying together, praying over the, yes, Lord. Doing life together in community. I loved going to the small groups. Love, by the way, did you see how loud it got at prayer night on Wednesday? That was incredible. I I thought the glass was going to come off that room. Right? But stirring one another up, that fires you up. And reorients our heart and perspective to the Lord together. Okay? Repent, remind, realign, relationship. Here it is, to turn to God. Repeat A and D over and over. Just repeat A and D over and over by the power of the Holy Spirit in you. If you are in Jesus Christ, you have been given the Spirit's power. Repeat over. That's just like as complicated as it gets. Where do you need to turn to him? Where do you need to turn? Just even look at that list. Where do you need to turn to him? Which one or more of those? Say, I got to get that back. I got to turn to the Lord again there. See? See? I will see God's glory in my situation when I turn to him in it. You will see it. This is the first step, but it doesn't end there. I must submit to him through it. I will see God's glory in my situation when I submit to him through it. Look at verses four and five. It says this. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. The key question right there, key question for the section comes out of that statement. Am I doing what God says to do? If I'm going to see God's glory in my situation, it's not enough just for me to say, okay, God, take over, and then I keep doing what I want. Am I doing what he tells me to do? Now, notice in verse 4, And Jesus said to her, woman, hey, men in the room, don't try that at home. Just don't try that at home, okay? All right, let's get proper context for this. Say, well, Jesus said it. Yeah, chill. Hold on a moment. All right, this is not being said disrespectfully. All right, the the interpretation that's closest to it is ma'am. Ma'am today. But he is being abrupt, right? Jesus goes on to say to her, he goes, woman, he says, what does this have to do with me? That can be translated, why are you involving me in this issue? My hour hasn't come. What does he mean by that? The hour he's talking about there and what you see here and what you'll see through all out the book of John, when Jesus, this is the hour when he would be fully revealed as the Messiah through his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his exaltation as his saving work was accomplished. So whenever you see, he says, my hour, throughout the book, that's what he's referring to, when he would be fully revealed as the Messiah. This was the mission that Jesus had been given to him by God the Father in accomplishing his will. 
So in essence, Jesus is lovingly rebuking his mom and saying, I didn't come to do the will of man. I came to do the will of my father. What do I have to do with this? And then look at verse 5. His mother said to the servants, doesn't even, doesn't even address them, she just looks at the servant and says, do whatever he tells you. Just do whatever he tells you. Mary, bless you. Instead of responding to Jesus, Mary turns to the servant and instructs him to do whatever Jesus told him to do. Why, why, why? Why does she do this? Because she knows he's God and would meet the need if the servant listened. Get this, she knows he's God and would meet the need if the servant listened to him and did what he was instructed to do. See, it wasn't just enough that one would turn to God. That's the first step. Yes, make no mistake. But if his glory was to be seen in this situation, there needed to be a submission to God and his way for how he said things were to be done. We couldn't just pay lip service and say, hey, okay, God, can you help a brother or sister out, please? And then I'm gonna go do my own thing and run back to my small G gods. It doesn't work like that. And I think today many of us fall into this illusion of thinking, well, I'll ask God for help, but then I'll just continue on my merry way. The question isn't just only are you turning to God, it's like, are you submitting to him? And doing what he says in obedience in that situation so that he can show his power and his glory in and through you. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. Are we submitting to him, doing whatever he tells us to do by the power of the Spirit? Whether he tells us to give up something that our flesh wants to cling to. What needs to change? We say, well, I don't want to, you know, I, I want God to work, but if I, if I ask him to work and then I do what he says, I, that's going to mean I have to humble myself and then admit I was wrong and, and then I'm going to have to change things. I'm going to have to actually put some godly order in how I spend the money God gives me. And I'm going to have to actually get my schedule in order with what he says needs to be. I don't really want to do that. See, we do this all the time, loved ones. And we go back, even though we call on God, we go back to what we think is best. Well, I don't see him where I don't see how he's going to work. I'm just going to do my own thing. Know this. See it on the screen. Submission demonstrates faith that what God says to do is best. Submission is where the rubber meets the road. It's one thing to say, God help me. It's another thing to say, whatever you ask me to do, whatever cost there is, whatever sacrifice you call me to make, whatever needs to be put to death in my sin, I'm all in for that. I'm not going to just kind of be apathetic about that anymore. Are we doing whatever he tells you to do? Taking the counsel that's given from those that fear the Lord and say, look, this is, this is an error in your life and here's the, what God promises us. No, don't tell me that. I'm going to do my own thing. Careful, careful, loved one. God opposes the proud. I love submission. It testifies to this, Psalm 1830. This God, his way is perfect, not yours, not mine. 
His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true and is a shield for all who take refuge in him. Did you get that? It proves true every time. Going back, submitting to the Lord, going back to what he promises to bless. This isn't like situation specific. This is across the board. Going back to what he promises to bless in your marriage. Going back to what he promises in your fight against sin. Going back to what he, all the time. The word of the Lord will prove true. So question, how about you? Do you believe that today? Think of that situation. Think of the trial. Do you believe that today? Because that's the heart of the matter. Are you submitting to God in your situation? Not just calling on him, but submitting to him. Whatever you say? Are you doing what he says to do through his word? Counsel from his word. Because here's what happens. Here's what happens when we do. When I submit to God, look at verses 10, 6 to 10, I will see his power. Get ready. Get ready to be encouraged. I will see his power. Look at 6 to 10. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water and fill them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, that means when they are inebriated, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Now, let's just get the magnitude of what happened there. Verse 6 says, we have um, 20 to 30 gallon stone water jars. So what do these look like? Here it is. I was standing literally right there. Show the next picture to you guys. I was standing literally right next to these. This is what they believe those stone water jars look like in Cana. They're there. You can go there today, Lord willing. We take a church trip to Israel and we will see that. Little plug. All right, all right? So we see that, and, and here they are, 20 to 30 gallons. Now, purification, what does that mean? These were the jars that people used to wash their hands and utensils before eating. All right, this was a ceremonial purifying. And the people in Israel, the Jewish people in Israel, still do that today. They have separate taps for this. When you go into a restaurant, water had to go over the wrist to make sure you're clean, right? It's a ceremonial cleansing, but Jesus tells the servant to fill them. And once the servant did to the brim, notice Jesus instructs him to draw out some water and take it to the master of the feast. He did it. Who's the headmaster of the feast? He's like the head caterer, okay? He's like the wedding planner, so to speak, these days, who then tastes the wine and tells the groom that the wine he's bringing out at the end was far superior to that which he served at the beginning. This is the opposite of what normally happened. But put this in perspective right here. You have six stone jars, 20 to 30 gallons each. Let's do the math. 120 gallons of wine. That's what it comes out to. 120 to 180 gallons of wine. Okay? Let's do this math a little more. 680 liters of wine. We're Canadian, let's go liters. Okay? Liters, which equals 907 750 milliliter bottles. <whistles> 907 bottles. 
Only God can create something out of nothing. You know what I love the most about God's word is that it's true. This actually happened. The truth is this, loved ones. In one moment, it went from zero to 907. But in a moment, God can do more in five seconds than you and I can in 50 years of striving on our own strength. Running to other gods. Will you submit to him and do what he tells you? See, our job isn't to try and figure out how God will do something. He never says, figure it all out first and then you'll see it. Our job is not to try to figure out how he'll do something or what that may look like if he provides or when it may happen, the timing. Our job is to confess that we can't do it. There you go. Our job is to submit to him and trust that he will do something as we do what he calls us to do by the power of his Holy Spirit in us. And it may not, don't think, if you're struggling with a health issue or an illness, this doesn't mean you're going to wake up the next day and be healed. Don't do that. We're not talking about a prosperity gospel here. God may choose to heal you, but one of the ways he's going to show his glory and his power may be that he's going to show his power through you through the peace The joy, the comfort, the strength that he gives you to get out of bed another day. That when people say, what is the reason for the hope that you profess? How can you have such a positive, joy-filled spirit in the midst of this? You say, because I serve the king of kings, and he's sufficient, and he's over this. And he may not heal me, but I'm going to be with him in glory one day. And he's going to be with me. And will supply all of my needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Amen? It's not our job to figure out what it should look like. I highly doubt the servants would have said, that's what it's going to look like. We're going to have 907 bottles of wine there. Really? Really? No. Let's be honest. Let's be honest. I love this. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Hey, loved one, right in the middle of your situation right now, right in the middle of the unknown, right in the middle of the trial, here it is. My grace is sufficient for you. In the pain, in the uncertainty, in the unknown, my power is made perfect in weakness. If we want to see God's power in our lives, we want to see God's glory in our situation, we have to say, you must increase, I must decrease. You must increase, I must decrease. Stop trying to be strong and relying on your own strength because his power is perfected in our weakness Paul goes on to say therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me I love that word rest just means to remain remain oh for him to increase I must decrease. I can't increase and expect God's power and glory to increase in my life. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Both of us can't increase. There's only one God, and he will not share his glory with another. Isaiah 42. 
So where do you need to decrease? And submit to the Lord to see his power in that situation. Where do you need to decrease? Where do I? So convicting this week. Because when I submit to God, I will see his power. Where do you need to stop striving? But when I see his power, it just gets better. Watch this. I will see his power and I will be strengthened in my faith. Look at verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. You see, once Christ's glory, what's the word for glory there? It means majesty. It means power was manifested or made visible or clear through this miracle. The disciples, it says, believed in him. Now, the word believe there is not an initial step of saving faith. It's not like, oh, I saw Jesus turn the water into wine, I'm, and now I've got the faith to be saved. No, no, no. The word believed there is one of deepening or strengthening faith and a growing trust in the Lord. They saw him at work. They got a glimpse of his deity. They got a glimpse of his power as creator of all things. And as they continue to live for him, think about what happens. When we see the glory of God in our lives, when we see that, look at this, look at this. We can look back. Now they can look back and see that he's been faithful, see that he's demonstrated his power. And what does that do for looking ahead and believing that he's able? It strengthens our faith. Say, Lord, I saw you do this last time, and even though this may be crushing me in a different way, I trust you again this time because you have always proved faithful as I turn to you and be saved, be delivered. He is able, I love this, beholding the glory of God is always a catalyst for our faith in God. Beholding the glory of God through his power, through his comfort, through his healing, through his sovereignty is always a catalyst for our faith in God. The question it all comes down to is this. Will you believe him? Will you believe him? That you will see his glory in your situation when you turn to him in it and you submit to him through it. What is your next step? What's your next step? If you're here and you've never confessed Jesus Christ as your personal savior, that's your first step. Your first step of turning to him in repentance and surrendering to him as the Lord of your life. No more ceremonial cleansing needed. Jesus cleanses you once for all time. Purified. And if you're here and you've made that confession of Christ I want you to take a moment right now, loved ones, as we finish right here, write down that one situation, that relationship, that job situation, that school situation, that pattern of sin. What is that one situation? You need to turn to him and submit to him today and stop striving on your own. Stop trying to take the wheel. Write it down. Just write it down. What is that for you? And say, Lord, I submit this to you. What you say goes I will do whatever you tell me in your word, your way, your time, to your end. There is no sacrifice that will be too great, no area of sin that will be unchecked. Give me the strength of your Holy Spirit to do what you say, and please show me your glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true. We thank you 
the offer of salvation, the offer of deliverance, God, is not based upon us, but it's based upon who you are and your saving work that all of these signs we will look at point to. One Savior, the one name under heaven by which we must be saved. And so right now in this place, I pray this would be a place of release. This would be a place of humility and saying, God, I am not gonna keep striving on my own strength in this situation. God, would you please, by the power of your Holy Spirit, give clarity Where are those small G gods? What am I running to? Enough is enough. Whatever you tell me, Lord. Whatever you tell me. No cost too great. You gave it all. No sacrifice that is too great. You sacrificed your life so that I might live and live in freedom. Lord, may it be so today because our God is greater. Our God is stronger. And our God is higher than any other. Have your way, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.